Good afternoon. Uh, I'm Vali Nasser, the Dean of Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies. And uh, it's a great pleasure to welcome everyone today to this conversation on affordable and clean energy for all, which is hosted by the school's initiative for sustainable energy policy. For nearly 75 years, Johns Hopkins SICE has created opportunities for our students to learn from scholars who study and shape policy, and also hear directly from the practitioners who implement and guide policy. Today's event is a perfect example of all that we have to offer as an institution that trains future global leaders. And it is uh, my special honor to welcome Dr. Rajiv Shah, president of the Rockefeller Foundation to SICE. Appointed as administrator of the U.S. Agency for International Development by President Obama in 2009, Dr. Shaw worked tirelessly to promote policies that dramatically improved the agency's work to end extreme poverty. And it was my great pleasure to meet him then while I worked on uh, Afghanistan and Pakistan and, and, the, uh, and when um, USAID had a, a very frontal role in helping uh, civilian support for that effort. Uh, during uh, his tenure, the Global uh, Food Security Act, as well as other presidential priorities, including Feed the Future and Power Africa, were signed into law with bipartisan support. After leaving USAID in 2015, Dr. Shaw founded Latitude Capital, a private equity firm focused on power and infrastructure projects in Africa and Asia. A native of Michigan, Dr. Shaw is a graduate of the University of Michigan, the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine, and the Wharton School of Business at the University of Pennsylvania. He has served as chief scientist and undersecretary for research, education, and economics at the U.S. Department of Agriculture and in a number of leadership roles at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. While his achievements are too numerous to list here, it is clear that Dr. Shaw's work and service have been instrumental in significantly improving the lives of millions of people across the world. And we would be welcome hearing his experiences. I would also like to thank our moderator, Professor Johannes Orfelainen, who is the director, and also Prince Sultan Ben Abdulaziz Professor at the Energy Resources Environment Program uh, here at SAIS. And he's also the founding director of the Initiative for Sustainable Energy Policy. Thank you again for joining us today. At this time, I would like to ask Dr. Shaw and Professor Orpelainen to come to the stage to begin their conversation. Thank you, Vali. That was very, very kind. Thank you. Hey, Professor. Sure. Thank you. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Johannes Urupelan. Um, I'm um, very glad to see all of you here, and it is a particular pleasure to welcome Dr. Shah with us uh, here at SAIS. Um, uh, I've started the Initiative for Sustainable Energy Policy, or ICEP, uh, last year when I started here. We had our uh, launching event uh, in October. Uh, last year with uh, Rachel Kite from uh, Sustainable Energy for All, and uh, 
We are uh, working right now in a few different geographies. Um, the ICEP's focus is really mostly on the intersection of energy and environment. So we are interested in solving the problem of sustainable development in emerging economies. We work in India, we work in China, we have active projects in Myanmar uh, and Vietnam uh, as well. And the challenge that we see here is that the center of gravity in today's world, energy environment, is really shifting away from the industrialized countries and more toward the emerging economies. Their populations are larger, uh, most of the economic development, most of the economic growth is now coming from these countries and as, as a result energy demand is growing. At the same time, uh, over one billion people still don't have electricity at home and three billion people cook with traditional firewood. So how do we solve these problems uh, without in the process uh, cooking the planet? That's really the fundamental challenge uh, that we face. And in doing this work, uh, we are very grateful for all the support that we received from the, the Rockefeller Foundation. One of our biggest projects this past year has been with Smart Power India, which is a Rockefeller launched initiative uh, in India that looks at creative ways for helping these rural communities uh, gain access to affordable, reliable, and clean energy. And we've had a big project working with them uh, in hundreds of villages, uh, with tens of thousands of households and thousands of companies in rural India. And those results, uh, I expect, will come out later uh, this fall. So this is a particularly um, good time for us to welcome Dr. Shah uh, with us here. So um, what I'd like to do now is I'd really like to keep my own questions and all that uh, very short. So um, why don't we hear from you uh, if you could tell us a little bit about the Rockefeller's approach um, both in general as a philanthropic organization and uh, in terms of the energy area. Sure, well thank you uh, Johannes for having me here and thank you all for, for coming. I want to have extend a special thank you to your dean. Uh, dean Nasser has been an extraordinary diplomat and leader in this town and around the world for a long time and so if you're a student here, you're, it's pretty exciting that you get to work with him. Uh, I got to learn from him a bit by watching him in action in the last administration, so thank you. Dean, for having me. Uh, I guess I'd, I'd uh, maybe start just by introducing the Rockefeller Foundation. We are a 105-year-old institution founded by John D. Rockefeller Sr. Uh, and he created the institution really to focus on bringing science and expertise and innovation to the task of lifting up humanity as much as possible. And at the time, in 1913 or 1914, that was a novel idea. You know, it was before even the federal government uh, aggressively pursued safety net programs and things that create more equity in our world. And so I feel quite honored to be at an institution that has represented science, technology, innovation, and expertise aligned around that very optimistic vision that if we use those tools correctly in the broadest possible ways, we can lift up as many people as possible and do things like power a green revolution uh, that help save a billion people from hunger and starvation in the 70s, 80s, and early 90s, or uh, invented much of the modern field of science-based international public health uh, that, that has had such an impact on the nature and quality of life around the world. Today, the Rockefeller Foundation focuses on the fundamentals of human welfare and human well-being, health, food, 
power jobs. Uh, we do that in a world we know is increasingly urban and urbanizing, and we do it in a world where we believe the frontiers of science and technology make almost anything possible if we're willing to take some risks, innovate, work with partners, and reach as many people as we can. And I'm so glad that SAIS is such an active partner in our Smart Power India project because that's a great example of what we're talking about. Uh, my colleagues and my predecessor had a wonderful insight years ago, which is uh, that perhaps the change in price point and technology around small-scale solar installations could allow solar mini-grids to be a solution for off-grid villages that have no access to power. And you could imagine, if you live in one of these villages, your children are not able to read at night, girls are not safe when they walk uh, outside of the home after dark. Uh, there's limited industry and efficiency because you don't have the kind of power to take advantage of improving human labor productivity. And you're mired in a cycle of despair and poverty. And in that context, this initiative has created, I think, some dramatic insights and results that show us that with a concerted global effort, we can really help bring power to the almost billion plus people around the world that live without it. And we can talk about that further. But I'm excited to be here. I'm glad to be able to extend the mission and optimism of the Rockefeller Foundation. And, uh, and I'm thrilled that SAIS is already an important partner for us. Excellent. Thank you very much uh, for those remarks. Uh, that's very useful. So I'm not going to uh, take too much time asking you questions. I want to open it to the audience uh, who have all come here to see us. But I do have a few questions that I'd like to ask to get us started. And the very first one is, so how do you see the Rockefeller Foundation's role in philanthropy in particular? What makes you special or different? There are so many other foundations that are active in this area. How is your work different and distinct from other players in this area? Yeah. Well, I'd say uh, we actually prefer to work in partnership and collaboration with other foundations, philanthropies, governments in the like. Uh, Smart Power India is a great example. Like we are, we've set out to electrify villages that were not electrified. Uh, today we reach more than 65,000 people through maybe 120 or more mini-grid installations, which are solar grids uh, that power a, a village and a community. What we've shown through that effort by kind of taking the upfront risk is that actually even the poorest households in that country are willing to pay for high quality, reliable power. And therefore, these mini grids, even at 23, 25, 28 cents a kilowatt hour, which can be a little bit high, uh, are sustainable financial enterprises if they get a bit of subsidization, subsidization to get off the ground initially. Based on that insight, we said, OK, let's collaborate with others. So we work with philanthropists in India and around the world. We work with the governments of uh, the states in which we work in India, as well as the federal government in India to put in place policies and procedures that would help extend that insight to our goal now is to reach 100 million people, not just 65,000. And the way we'll bridge that gap are through those types of partnerships. So we love uh, being a collaborator and engaging in those partnerships and focusing on scale and results. Uh, and sometimes when we're able to come up with kind of innovative new insights about what's possible, it's exciting to see people want to be a part of something that looks promising and potentially very successful. 
Excellent. Um, my second question is really uh, for many of our students who are interested in working uh, in the field of development. So you've done this as a USAID administrator, you've done it as the president of Rockefeller Foundation, and many other roles. What have you learned about working in countries like India, Myanmar, Afghanistan, Africa, that you think yeah. our students should really keep in mind and uh, focus on? Well, you know, we were just talking about that uh, ahead of this discussion. I, I think, I'm glad you have a development program here. I would urge you to really focus on building the kind of technical expertise required to be a professional in that field. And we at the Rockefeller Foundation value that expertise tremendously. Uh, at the same time, I think it's important to understand the political trajectory and the politics and governance aspects of what's happening in the places where you're working. Our India project is, I think, going to be successful in part because Prime Minister Modi has set the goal of ending energy poverty in India. Uh, in fact, they announced that they've electrified every village in India, basically. And there's some truth to that in the sense that there's probably a power line that goes into every village physically. But there's still 300 million people that don't have access to power. And so, and it's certainly not quality, reliable power. But the reason that political statement is so important is we know that's their goal. We've approached them and said, let's become a partner. And we understand that they have to deliver results against that goal in a politically relevant timeline for it to remain a priority. And I sometimes hope uh, our colleagues in the field of development could be a bit more attuned to that political and governance reality in which they're working, because that's how you really get to scale. Uh, we worked on these issues, uh, the dean and I, together in Afghanistan many years ago. And you know, we, we saw the, the value of bringing electrification to villages and cities as a clear demonstration of why uh, the population should support governance that is focused on those types of objectives, right? If you can turn the lights on, whether it's in Mogadishu or Kandahar or elsewhere, you're making a statement about the quality of governance and you're predictably improving people's lives in a very tangible way. And sometimes the political or military uh, colleagues of our development partners would, would be so focused on getting those lights turned on so that you could see the tangible impact of development work. And our development colleagues would be uh, you know, a, on a different timeline because it is generational. Countries developing, advancing governance systems, fighting corruption, these are generational concepts. And, and it takes 20, 30, 40 years sometimes to be really dramatically successful. We gotta find ways to bridge that. Excellent. Now, finally, um, I do want to ask about energy in particular. That's my yeah. specialty, and we have a very large energy resources and environment program yeah. here at the school. So, just looking back the past few years, uh, things are moving quickly. We have all these technological advances in solar power. New companies are appearing, starting new business models, trying out new things. What do you think are some of the exciting, promising um, solutions, ideas, technologies there for helping everybody get access to this affordable and reliable uh, power and cooking energy in the future? Well, that's a great question. I suspect you and your class would know more <laughs> about some of the answers. Uh, but here's some thoughts. The first is, it's important to recognize why we care, right? Power and electricity are really the baseline for development and poverty reduction. 
And we at the Rockefeller Foundation believe that we should look very carefully at redefining poverty in energy consumption terms. The, the standard measures of global poverty are still measured ultimately in a basket of goods that emanates from a total calories mindset. And total calories is probably not the right measure anymore of what poverty really is. Uh, and energy consumption might be. So, so that's first. Why is it important? Because it is the basis of growth, development, poverty reduction, and the like. In terms of how do you get there, we believe at this point that uh, it has to be a combination of working with governments, big public utilities, big power generators to produce more power, do it economically in a viable way, and extend the reach of national grid systems to as many people as you can reach. But we also believe that you can't wait 25 years for the grid to reach a rural village in India or in Myanmar or in Kenya. And you can accelerate that process by investing in mini grids, investing in distributed renewable energy solutions uh, like solar home packages. And as the technology improves, the, both the cost and the amount of power and the usefulness of that power is going to get better and better and better. And then someday, it'll be easier for a grid because it won't have to reach every household. It'll just have to connect into these mini grids that are already out there. And that can be a vision for bringing power to a billion people much, much, much more quickly than the path we're otherwise on. And I would just leave you with what, what is the value of doing that? I mean, that, that probably is the path to ending poverty in a much more sustainable, meaningful, and robust way. Uh, than any other choice we could make in global development. So that's why we care so much. That's why I'm here, <laughs> in addition to just getting to meet everybody. Uh, and we hope you'll commit yourself to that mission alongside of us. So great. Uh, so I hear uh, a few different key themes here. Uh, one is certainly the value of these partnerships. So working with governments, organizations, private sector in uh, the countries where this issue is, is really being faced. And uh, that's something that we also see in our own experience working here at SAIS. We are based here in DC. This is not where the energy access problem is. Yeah. So building these sustainable partnerships where learning and effectiveness and all that is really a two-way street with organizations in India, Myanmar, elsewhere has been a big priority for us. And uh, I think Rockefeller Foundation has done some terrific work with supporting also local organizations in yeah. building their capacity. The other one is this broadening portfolio of approaches that we have. So if you talk about electrification, let's say 10 years ago, you really mostly talk about grid extension. That's, that's all there is. But today, uh, thanks to all these technological advances and new models, we have a few different things we can try. And how to fit those together in different conditions is really uh, where the, the opportunity is. And I think that's where both Smart Power India and now I think also Smart Power Myanmar is, is playing an important role. So uh, we are actually also at ISEP, we are active in Myanmar, and we've worked, uh, done some work together with Smart Power Myanmar. It's another initiative uh, supported and launched by, by the Rockefeller Foundation. Um, with that, I'd really like to open the, the discussion for the audience. So if we have any questions, comments for Dr. Shah um, from, the, from the audience. Do we have a microphone for the... I think there's somebody here. Um, thank you. Uh, my, my name is Niraj. Uh, I'm, I'm a 
I work as a consultant at the World Bank, and I graduated from um, um, University of Maryland in public policy. Uh, quick question uh, to Dr. Shah is on how do you ensure local knowledge in your development objectives? Because we often consider uh, India as a, you know, as a, as a one single country, but it's not. It should many say that it shouldn't be treated as a monolithic country. It should be. Uh, we need to look into subnational governments. Same is the case with Africa. We often leniently talk about it as a country, but it's really a continent with uh, different uh, countries. So, how does Rockefeller ensure you know local knowledge and yeah. uh, capacity? In that's a great question, and I will say that's one of the things I think the Rockefeller Foundation, just given its long history of work in these places around the world, has that does particularly well. Uh, we have presence around the world when we embark on big aspirational projects like Smart Power India, we actually help create an Indian institution with Indian leaders, Indian financiers, Indian institutions that can help partner with government and build these public-private partnerships that are almost entirely local. And that's how they should be. I mean, the Rockefeller Foundation's been in India uh, forever. My, when I got this job, my dad told me he remembered, because he grew up in India, he remembered the trains and uh, and things going by, and they would have the little Rockefeller logo on them sometimes because we were such an important partner during the Indian Green Revolution that in parts of the country uh, we were actually you know, quite noted as an institution. So uh, it, it's good to have that long-standing respect for and presence in these places because that's what both creates the credibility and the ability to build partnerships that can then help us be successful. The mic is coming, no worries, no worries. Hi, my name is Aditya. I'm a second year uh, student at Johns Hopkins, SAIS. Uh, my question is, how does a project like this vary with election cycles and with specific concern to India? What are the possible futures of this project in 2019 and yeah. further? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I mean, look, power is a top priority for any political leader running a, a nation. Uh, we learned that, I learned that during the Obama administration. You know, every head of state that would come to see us uh, from an emerging economy would want to talk about power, would want to talk about infrastructure, would want to explore whether the United States, a little bit like China has, can play a bigger role in helping them achieve those uh, public investment goals. And it became readily apparent that that was the focus of what people valued and felt they needed to produce for their populations in order to be politically successful. So I would be shocked if a, uh, you know, let's say a different party came to power in any of our partnership countries on the smart power effort uh, for them to say, well, power access, electricity is no longer critical. Uh, if anything, in the development field, we've over-diversified our investments and at the expense of valuing low-cost, sustainable, and reliable power as an absolute core driver of economic growth and activity. And uh, so I, I actually have found in this one space political leaders to be more focused than our global development partners, uh, including ones I've been a part of in the past. 
Well, uh, add one note on that. We were actually working in India on some of these microgrid concepts uh, during the 2014 general election when Prime Minister Modi came into power. And we had to stop working on these microgrids for the election campaign because some of the local candidates went around and said that uh, we will provide everybody with free, unlimited power <laughs> as soon as you elect us. And apparently in some villages, people Did that believed this. Mostly not. Mostly <laughs> yeah, not. Yeah. These were mostly the candidates that are not in power today. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. But we had to stop for a month because of that. And after the elections were over, people came back to the normal activity. And I think for our next set of projects in 2019, we will face some of the same issues again. Hi, I'm Mary Marks. I graduated from here focusing on development many years ago. Um, I have a facetious preface uh, question, which is, as a rural inhabitant of Virginia on a farm, when are you going to bring smart power to Virginia? <laughs> so we're no longer under the dominion of dominion power. The other one is that um, you mentioned caloric intake and electrification as measures of development. Um, National Geographic Society did a long-term study that concluded that the education of women was a fundamental element of uh, improved conditions. So wh where's the nexus in your, uh, yeah. your stated outlook and that? Yeah. That's an excellent, both points are excellent points. The, the, uh, on the first one, I would recommend this book called The Grid, which I just finished reading, which is just outstanding. And until I really read that and thought about it, it hadn't occurred to me how uh, fixed infrastructure that has accumulated over many, many decades holds back our ability to have more sustainable, reliable power, not just in rural America, but all, all across our country. Uh, and you know, we should be having a big national debate on upgrading our infrastructure for the 21st century. And even when we do, you hear about roads and bridges, but you rarely hear about the electrical grid. So uh, I'll leave it at that, but I hear you on that point. On the second one, Look, the, the, what we see in our programs is that when you bring electrification into these rural settings, uh, you immediately see a lot of women's empowerment, uh, including uh, women entrepreneurs that are now using sewing machines to you know, uh, generate income and build small businesses. Uh, we know that when income preferentially goes to women, that's much, much better for child development educational outcomes, as I'm sure you have pointed out. And we see that the electrification in particular is used to help kids go, both go in school and read at night. I mean, pretty basic things, including girls. So you know, it just starts that positive cycle of improving human productivity, using that excess freed up productivity for ever better causes. And the more women-centric the, these efforts are, the more effective you are at getting that productivity effect to drive real human development for families. Uh, so that's the goal. And that is actually what we see in the 65,000 people that we reach in India. And it's why I think we've got so much interest from East African countries and Myanmar to expand this program into those places.
Hi, my name's Daniel. I'm a first year here at SICE. What besides an unlimited amount of money and an unlimited amount of time needs to transfer to make 65,000 into a billion people to have access? So I think you know, governance and technology. And uh, that's stylized, of course, as an answer. So I'm sure there are other things. But you, gotta ha you have to have leaders say, we want total electrification as a goal. We're willing to put resources, political will, partnership effort into delivering that goal. And we're going to focus the public sector on achieving that. No country, including the United States, has achieved rural electrification, for example, without a tremendous amount of public sector engagement. Sometimes, back in the day, that was building power generation. Sometimes it's paying for transmission. Uh, but sometimes it's changing the regulatory structure. Sometimes it's allowing people to have licenses, like in rural Kenya, so they can run their own mini-grid-based utilities and collect uh, payment for providing electricity, which is often illegal without a special permit. So there are often, so governance, it starts with governance and leadership. I, and then I say technology as sort of a euphemism for, for innovation, really. We've seen, I mean, I saw years ago in Kabul, we were able to increase the collections for the Kabul-based central utility by 400% by introducing a mobile payment and billing system. We know that smart meters in, in India, through some of our other partners, are transformational in their ability to allow a, a villager to pay for only the power they use. Uh, we've seen all kinds of production technologies on, as solar gets cheaper and cheaper uh, be really important. And someday, effective, uh, cost-effective, and durable storage for mini-grids, for households, and for big grid systems is going to be the necessary breakthrough to really transition us into a high percentage of renewables as the main power source. Uh, and when you look around the world, you know, these are the types of things we should be having Manhattan projects on. And I give Bill Gates a lot of credit for building this vehicle called the Breakthrough Energy Coalition, or Venture, uh, which is investing in flow batteries and other kinds of advanced technologies. The United States Department of Energy has a facility at Argonne National Lab in Chicago, which is kind of a must-visit place if you're going to work in this space, because they do cutting-edge energy storage, chemistry work, and the like. Uh, a lot of Chinese firms are, are looking at large grid-based storage, but our folks who are studying this should learn about the technology frontier because what the solution set's going to look like 20 years from now, 10 years from now, is very different from what it looks like today. Let me follow up on that. So how do you think students at an institution like SAIS who are really mostly here to study international relations and policy, what is the best way for us to make sure that we stay up to speed with these new technologies? I don't know, ask the dean for field trip money and, <laughs> and go out to some of these places. I, I don't know the technical answer, but it's so exciting because you see, you'll, you'll have all the expertise about what is it, what do you really have to do to deploy these types of technologies in settings that you understand very, very deeply. Uh, and, and there are very few people that have both insights. Uh, we got lucky in the last administration. We had a phenomenal energy secretary, Dr. Ernie Moniz, who wanted to be a partner for global electrification and is just brilliant. Uh, but, you know, uh, in today's world, you, you just probably got to be a little more proactive. Sounds great. I'm always uh, in, in support of more field trips, so please stay <laughs> in us. Make a note, make a note.
Hey, I'm Malera. I graduated from Gallaudet University. Maybe some of you know Gallaudet was actually one of the, the, the first uni deaf university in the world. I also grew up in different countries. I've studied. Um, there's a lot of, uh, there's uh, 700, there's 700 million deaf people in the world. Africa has 200 million, and so there's many networks that we have in India as well. There's many deaf people that have issues of the lack of access to energy. Even some girls don't have security, so things very similar. So I was wondering, for the Rockefeller Foundation, um, is there any ideas or planned ideas for the deaf people to, to gain access to the energy? And if there's any partnerships with deaf um, leaders in that community? Thanks for taking my question. Uh, well, well, thank you for asking that question. And I would say I, I think we understand the importance of inclusive development and ensuring that all people, especially those uh, that would traditionally be left behind in some of these types of efforts are, are included in the benefits and the process. That said, for these particular communities, I'm not aware of specific partnerships we have uh, with, uh, with organizations that represent uh, deaf individuals. Uh, although, I will say both Matt and Danny are here representing the Rockefeller Foundation uh, with me today. And if you had ideas on how we could pursue that, we'd love, love to hear that. Hello, uh, my name is Doug McKenzie. I'm with uh, IEEE Smart Village and the Navy's Resilient Energy Program. Oh, good. Uh, my, my question is on the, the technical logistics of selecting communities, and uh, how do you select those communities? Do you look for business needs, or do you look for schools that would uh, be able to utilize the energy? And then also in the selected communities, did you uh, implement any clean energy, uh, clean fuel, um, solutions and differentiating between the access to power and a uh, clean fuel. Yep. Thank you. Uh, that, those are great questions. I, I'd say there's a pretty careful methodology for identifying uh, communities. And the way this program works is we actually made what we call program-related investments in a series of companies that are able to then build out a commercial model for serving the very poor with these mini-grid technologies. For that commercial model to be viable at a price point that works for people, uh, we've learned a few things. The first is it is helpful, as I think you indicated, to have an anchor customer that's a good payer. You know? And so one of the things they've done is uh, looked at opportunities to serve one or two mobile phone towers, use that as an anchor load customer, build out the mini grid with the knowledge that they're going to be some percentage of the total power consumption, and then take the remaining amount of power and distribute it into uh, local communities, which we learned are very reliable payers, but which we didn't know initially would be very reliable payers. So that's, that's one answer to your question. Um, a second is if you then take that strategy and map it out, uh, you, you know, you got to be pretty market-oriented, but you can identify which communities have the rural population density the access to a, a primary load customer like a mobile uh, cell tower uh, and or other indications of business activity and potential demand. Uh, 
that can give you a map of where you want to put, put these grids uh, in order to be most successful. And then the third, which is I'm perhaps most excited about, is we're now working with uh, a set of analysts that are using geospatial tools and artificial intelligence to predict you know, which household is likely to climb up the power curve, start a successful business, and keep climbing up the power demand curve, thus being a source of you know, large-scale, long-term demand growth. And which ones are going to turn a light bulb on, you know, help their kids read at night, but not uh, continue to be large-scale growing their energy demand over time? And the tools now exist. Even five years ago, we couldn't do this. Now, uh, between partners like IBM Research and the University of Massachusetts, tools exist to do this in a much, much, much more granular way. And that, if you think about it, is going to just unlock the power of markets to be an important part of the solution to global energy poverty. And we're excited to be on the cutting edge of that. Thank you, Selma uh, Zakharovich. I'm also uh, an alumna from uh, SAIS. Your last uh, response, uh, you mentioned uh, the use of uh, phone um, towers, cell phone towers, and it reminded me of two projects that late Dr. David Giraj was uh, teaching about when, when I was here. So. Um, if you could just comment whether these projects are linked, and I'm sure he would have been very pleased to see that it's actually working out in practice. Thank you. Well, thank you. And he uh, was an important partner for the Rockefeller Foundation here. And uh, I, this precedes my tenure, but I understand that uh, some of the insights from that work is what led to the decision to invest in expanding uh, and creating a, a power program in rural India that would first try to reach a few hundred villages, I think a thousand villages was the initial target, and then expand to the hundred million people. So uh, my understanding, you might have a better understanding, my understanding is that work uh, led to this effort, and we are very grateful for that. Yeah, so um, I started working on this uh, mini-grid sector in, in India in 2012, and this was uh, right at the time when this uh, Smart Power India program had been launched by the Rockefeller Foundation. Uh, it was under a different name back then. Uh, was it um, Smart Power Speed, uh, Smart Power Energy and Development, something along those lines. And Dr. Girard was one of the uh, people here from the Rockefeller side and then from the side side that had been spearheading this effort. Um, and funnily enough, my current chair is the one that uh, Dr. Girard had when he was the director of the, of the program. So there is certainly this continuum where we continue the same work now with ISEP that Dr. Girard started in India uh, together with Rockefeller Foundation, size and local partners uh, about uh, seven, eight years ago. Good afternoon, Dr. Shah. Thank you for being here today. I'm a SICE graduate, uh, class of 2008, and I worked at the State Department USAID when you were administrator, ah, so thank, thank you, you for your service. Thank you uh, for yours. I have a question. Um, it's a macro question. It's, it's more a numbers question. Uh, 
I'm a financial advisor at Morgan Stanley now. A lot of my clients come to me and ask me about sustainable investing. Uh, I know that the Rockefeller Foundation was a leader on this in divesting itself from fossil fuel-based uh, industries. Uh, and I know that may predate you, but I was wondering if you could talk about that process and where some of those funds are being invested today. Thank you. Sure. Well, thank you. The question is specifically about uh, one of our partner organizations called the Rockefeller Brothers Fund that made a pretty bold statement that they were going to divest from fossil fuel-based businesses in their endowment investment strategy. Um, and they have a rather sizable endowment. Uh, it did predate me. They worked very hard on that effort. And you know they just felt that uh, as climate was a major programmatic goal, they had to both make a stand and demonstrate the viability of a portfolio management process that can work with those kinds of exclusionary restrictions and still sustain the program. Uh, I'm not up to date on the numbers, uh, but they, I think, have demonstrated that it is possible. Uh, but as you know, since you're Morgan Stanley, it's extraordinarily complex. So I, I'm, not, uh, I'm not aware enough to be able to delve into that complexity. Uh, I will say, in general, I believe the field of innovative finance or impact investing is a, is a rapidly growing one. And we at Rockefeller see a lot of opportunities for that type of finance to help support the growth of efforts and initiatives that can help achieve the sustainable development goals. In power, for example, you know, we made these program-related investments. These companies demonstrate the model. Uh, a couple of them have attracted genuine commercial investment uh, in the next round to get to the next level of scale, because now this is a proven model. You know, they're, they're able to offer a certain return uh, rupee-based return that some investors find, you know, attractive, and they're able to present themselves as a big part of the solution to ending last-mile poverty at the same time. So, I think that's the kind of win-win that I hope you guys are working on, uh, you know, packaging those things and sending them to your investors who are looking for those opportunities. We have time for two more questions. Um, Nicola Daniel, I'm at the University of Maryland. Um, kind of building on your question just now, I was working with a group of students on um, microgrid modeling for modeling for potential investors. And one of the big um, pushback arguments that always came was, what happens when the grid arrives in the place where the microgrid where the microgrid is? What's the how do investors? What's the status of private investing yeah. with that problem? That's a very smart question, <laughs> a very sophisticated one. Uh, we're, we're tackling that in India right now because what happens is the, the federal, the government provides a small subsidy to set up a microgrid business. That business is moving along and it is the stated goal of the grid to extend into that village and plug into that microgrid. So the terms uh, of that agreement have to respect and honor the fact that entrepreneurs who took the risk that built those grids and uh, built businesses that reach people who are last mile customers uh, need to have the ability to generate revenue over the long term. And at the same time, you know, the grid brings cheaper energy when it is finally connected and if it's managed effectively. And so over time, the prices for power as these things connect should go down 
but that puts downward pressure on, on revenue, obviously, for these firms. So that's, you know, that's a math problem that has to be negotiated out and a policy problem that needs a framework for partnership uh, that we're working on actively and trying to learn a lot about. I think that's going to be, I think we'll pioneer solutions to that question in India. But this whole approach and this whole strategy is going to be even more relevant to bringing power to the last mile in Africa because you have lower rural densities. Uh, the cost of extending grid-based transmission is higher on a per capita basis. Energy production is much higher on a per capita basis in terms of cost of what energy costs in those settings. And the timeline for reaching every rural community with the grid uh, is much farther out. So the things we're pioneering in India, now deploying in Myanmar, we believe are going to be a huge part of the solution in Africa and will have relevance to both poverty reduction and conflict mitigation and avoidance as we bring development to some of the tougher communities in the world. One um, note I would add to this is that this also brings us back to the theme of governance. So, for example, in India, both the national government and the state government of Uttar Pradesh, where half of the non-occupied households are, they both actually have fairly progressive draft policies for uh, connecting mini-grids and grids and providing the right incentives and the clarity of investment and all that. But those are not being put uh, into action uh, as effectively as we would have liked. So this is one of those examples where really working with the government and going from a good idea into concrete implementation is critical. I'm Terry Hill with the, past, with the uh, eMERGE Alliance. And uh, <clears throat> I've got two questions. Well, what about the role of direct current in the future of microgrids? And what about the uh, role of blockchain in making it available to low-income housing? All right, these questions are getting tougher. They're supposed to get, <laughs> get a little easier. Uh, in case you missed, the first question was the role of, of direct current or DC in these systems. I don't know the answer to that, uh, but I, I do know that especially from a uh, like public lighting application. There are a lot of people who believe you, if you can create uh, DC to DC based systems, you can provide power in a, a slum like Kibera, for example, with a very, very, very small solar installation. And so the idea that, you, that the long-term solution is a solar panel on every street light uh, is an outdated concept if you have these new systems in place. And uh, they are being invented as we speak. Uh, so based on that, one would assume that there are huge efficiency gains that would make the kind of rural mini-grid work we're doing now even more of a viable long-term solution as that technology migrates into those applications. Uh, blockchain is beyond my area of expertise. We have a wonderful team at the Rockefeller Foundation led by Sadia Mossberg and Zia Khan that that do a lot of work in that space, but I, I don't want to venture too far and get myself in trouble. Okay, um, I think we have time for one more question. Um, so if there's somebody in the audience. Right here, yeah. Hi. Okay. <laughs> the last one. I was in the back. Good afternoon, thank you for being here. My name is Karina Mandel and I came down from Baltimore working on building a green district there. My question is um, related to your discussions about partnerships and what I've seen from my work in working with in different cities and communities is that there are a lot of silos 
So everyone's doing something different. You guys are all doing something here in DC. In Baltimore, we're not necessarily connected. And my curiosity is about the systems integration that at least I believe should be happening. And how are you doing that at the Rockefeller Foundation where it's not just only solar or only aquaponics or only STEM education, but that a student in high school should be learning biology at the vertical farm, and then that vertical farm should be selling at the local market. And I don't see a lot of that happening. I'm curious if you could comment on that. Yeah. yeah. Gosh, these are getting tougher as we're ending here. Uh, well, thank you. I, yeah, systems integration is tough. Uh, I'd say in the, e the easiest application is just if you look in the power, and I know this isn't your question, uh, but it is super hard, believe it or not, just to link power plants, grids, mini grids, extended grids, like just systems integration in the context of this power initiative is itself a significant task. That didn't seem to be the thrust of your question, though, as you're asking about something more full. Uh, our focus is in areas like health, food, power, and jobs. And we do try to encourage, we think it's at those points of integration across the boundaries where we're seeing a lot of innovation take place. So our health and food work, for example, uh, the new science of nutrition, how children absorb micronutrients, what that means for health and what that should mean for food systems uh, is quite powerful and very novel. In this example, the intersection between energy and jobs and the types of microenterprise and the types of work that, that sort of seem to take off when you bring power to a village are areas where we want people learning. I don't know that we as a foundation are particularly active on university campuses to help you know, at that level to connect it all the way to STEM education, as you noted. Uh, but it is in the intersections of these areas where you find real innovation that could be transformational over time. And so I'd encourage those of you who are uh, still in school and thinking about what comes next to find opportunities to really learn uh, the science and the policy at those points of intersection, because that's where we'll get the big new breakthroughs. So thank you. And thank you. So that was great. Um, I think these questions are getting tough, but that was our last question. So I think we, uh, we can give you a passing grade for this conversation. Thanks so much for coming. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you.